All right, you got your finger in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We actually just have this week and next week, and then we're done with 1 John 4. And if I haven't already mentioned it, beginning this fall, we're going to be working our way through the book of Ephesians. So if you are one of those guys who likes to get ahead of the game, you can start reading the book of Ephesians, all six chapters of it. We're going to jump into that this fall. Now, one of the things people get excited about, especially when it comes to sporting events, think of like the Olympics and that kind of thing, is the chance to see people break world records. I mean, this is why we got all jazzed up about Michael Phelps. Apparently, he can swim okay. I mean, same thing is through track and field when Usain Bolt was on the line. I mean, that was just amazing see that guy run. And it's uh, almost sad to see him retire. Uh, but you know, there's other records besides just sporting records. And the Guinness Book of World Records contains all kinds of different records in different categories. You can have the, the tallest man, the oldest person, the deepest dive, and uh, the longest beard. There's all kinds of records in the Guinness Book of World Records. And, and one man's listed in there in particular. His name is Poon Lim, or Poon Lim. I don't know how you pronounce it, unfortunately. And he holds a record as well. In fact, when he was told that he had achieved breaking a record, he said this, I hope no one will ever have to break that record because of the ordeal he went through to do it. Boon Lim was born in China. During the Second World War, he served on a British merchant ship, and that ship was making a crossing from the west coast of southern Africa over to Brazil, and about 750 miles east of the Brazil coast... A German U-boat sank that ship. Everybody on board perished except for Poon Lim. He survived and found himself in the open sea swimming for two hours. After two hours of swimming, he happened upon a lifeboat, a little wooden eight-foot square lifeboat. Probably was sitting on the deck of the ship he was sailing on. It happened that this lifeboat also had a little jug of water and some meager rations, which he survived on for a time. He was also able to fashion a fishing rig out of the wires in an old flashlight and a piece of rope that he found on board. He had to collect water after rough seas spoiled his water reserve. So he would fish from his raft, and in order to get his catch on board, he would have to get off of his life raft to get his catch. That was problematic. He didn't swim very well. He had tied a rope around his waist, so that way, if need be, he could climb back up onto the boat. It was also a problem because there was a lot of sharks swimming around his raft. In fact, once he caught a good-sized shark, which he was fairly excited about because it would have a lot of meat and even some water. So he landed the shark on his boat, was able to get the hook free of its mouth, and the shark attacked him. He was able to beat it to death with his water jug. Now, if you've never prayed what I call the really God prayers, you know what that prayer is, where something happens in your life, and you're like, really, God? When you're being attacked by a shark on your lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, that's when you pray one of those <laughs> prayers. So from November 23rd, 1942, till April 5th, 1943, a total of 133 days, Poon Lim drifted in the ocean. His journey ended when his life raft washed up on the east coast of Brazil. Some fishermen were there and provided him aid, but in fact, he was doing well enough to be able to walk off his life raft on his own strength. So he holds the record for the longest survival in the open ocean alone on a life raft. Others have been out longer, but they, many of them were with others. 
and most of them were on disabled boats or watercraft. Poon Lim was totally alone on a life raft, and so he holds the record for that. If you want something to do, go for it. Great Britain bestowed on him the British Empire Medal, and in fact, they learned from him many survival techniques they now teach their sailors today. After the war was over, he immigrated to the United States. He died in Brooklyn in 1991. So no one has ever matched what Poon Lim did, frankly, because no one has ever been in that situation. No one has ever had the resources he had in that kind of situation, and honestly, I mean, nobody really wants to break that record. It doesn't mean others didn't come close, but the fact is nobody was in that situation and nobody had the kind of resources that he had. You know, actually, the same holds true for God. Of course, I'm not talking about being trapped on a life raft in the open sea, but let me explain it this way. You ready? No one has ever loved like God. No one has ever loved like God because no one has ever given up so much to make so many wrong things right. No one has ever loved like God because no one has ever given up so much to make so many wrong things right. What is it called when somebody harms you and you sacrifice to make it right for them? Well, that's called love. And that's what we're going to discover in our passage today in 1 John chapter 4, that no one else has given up more than God. What did he give up? He gave up his own son as a sacrifice. And no one has given up more as a result of the reckless actions of others. Our rebellion. No one has ever loved like God. That's the title of our message today. And as we go through 1 John chapter 4, I want us to be thinking and understanding what this means for us and for our life in God. No one has ever loved like God because no one has ever loved under these kinds of conditions, ever. What kind of conditions are they? Verses 7 through 10 of 1 John chapter 4. Here are the conditions. We sin, God sins. No one has ever loved like God. We sin, God sins. Let me read verses 7 through 10 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he begins this by helping us understand the point that he's going to get to. He says, beloved, let's love one another. He says, I want you to love one another the same way that God loves. Well, how does God love? That should be our question. Well, how in the world does God love? Well, God is the source of love. He is uh, the one who shows us what kind of love we should love with. He is the one who shows us what type of love he has. And this is the kind of love that God Offers. He makes known his love by sending Jesus so that we can live. What is God's love like? His love is like this. I will send my son so that you can live. In fact, he says this in verse 10. My love is made known, made manifest. Most of us don't use a word like manifest very often in conversation, but 
You can take that as a personal challenge for this week, using manifest in casual conversation. But God's love is revealed because he sent Jesus. We we sinned, he sends. Romans 3.23 says this, For most of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, good. Just make it sure. Again, I got to just check with you. The smoke is making us all a little bit tired. And For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in fact, the wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23, the wages, the earnings of our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So what happens when we sin in order to pay for it, the cost is separation from God. Because we're in rebellion against God. Since God is the source of life, we're dead. We may not be dead yet, but we're on the right road. And so God's love is made known to us in that while we were in the midst of our rebellion, intentionally not loving him, he loved us. So his love is not merely made known that he loves people who are sort of into God stuff. God's love is most profoundly understood and revealed because he loves those who don't love him. In fact, he loves those who are in open rebellion to him. God's love is revealed in the fact that he sent Jesus so we could live. And God's love is revealed in the fact that he loved us and did this even though we didn't love him. 1 John 4.10. Let me read it again because this is important. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God's kind of love is is a love that initiates to those who have rejected him And he is the one who makes the initiation. He makes the love known to those who would reject him. Jesus said it this way over in John 15, 13. I'm going to start reading in John 15, 12. Jesus said this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And you know when he said that, all the disciples were like, oh, okay, that sounds cool, we're down. And then he said this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then you could imagine the disciples at that point. Well, no, hold on. I gave it the office. Lay down my life? Have you met these guys, Jesus? Jesus' command is that we love one another in the same way that he loves, which is self-sacrificing to the point, in fact, of giving up our life. That's the manner in which Jesus has loved us, to lay down his life for those who need it. The fancy word in the version I'm reading in 1 John 4.10 is this. God has loved us, and he has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's kind of a fancy word, and it simply means this, that Jesus took upon himself the punishment we should have endured. So what's the wage of sin? Death. It's the natural result of separating yourselves from the source of life. If you separate yourself from the source of life, you experience death. You unplug the vacuum, it's got no electricity. You unplug from God, you have no life. And so the wages of sin is death. And what Jesus said is, I will be the one who pays your wage. I will pay what you ought to have paid. So Jesus takes on himself our death. Now, what's great about Jesus dying for us is that he's able to come back to life. We can't do that very well. 
In fact, we can't do it at all. But Jesus is able to die in an eternal death on our behalf and then come back to life and overcome sin and death. And so when we trust in Jesus for forgiveness, we join him in eternal life. Because he paid the wage, he was the propitiation. He was the one who took on himself the wage of our sin. And why did Jesus do all this? Why does the Father give his love by sending Jesus? And why does Jesus willingly bear on himself the death that should have been on us? Well, because we love him so much. No. Because that's just how God rolls. He loves even when there is not love returned. He is God who loves the rebellious, God who loves the sinner, God who gives up himself for those who have rejected him. That, I don't want to be sacrilegious. This, this guy's pretty awesome. Do you know anybody else who loves like this? I mean, for more than five minutes. Nobody else loves like None of us can pull this off. And this is God's nature. Think of your relationships in your life, the way you have experienced love and relationship. Have you ever been rejected? Yeah. Have you ever been harmed by someone else emotionally? Experienced hurt in relationship? Yeah, I think we all have. Have you ever experienced hatred from someone else? Earned or unearned? You ever been robbed? Stolen your money, your time, your reputation? Ever been insulted? Disrespected? Well, we call this Monday, right? God has too. God has been all of these things and more from every single person who has ever lived. God was rejected, harmed, hated, murdered, robbed, insulted, disrespected from every human being who has ever lived. And he said, I love you. I'm going to send my son to you. Who has ever loved like this before? No one has ever loved like this before. And given the severity of the rebellion that we have participated in, what's required of us to receive this love? God is this God who loves the rebel, who loves the sinner. So what is required that we might receive this love? This sounds like a pretty good deal. Let's take a look at it. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read again, if you don't mind, 11 through 18. You can follow along with me or just listen if you'd like. Verse 11 says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16, this is the kind of the key verse for this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Finally, verse 18. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. How do we receive this love? We sin, God saves. How do we receive this love? We believe, God saves. We believe, God saves. So again, in verse 11, he's calling us to love one another the same way God loves us. He is the source of our love. He shows us what kind of love this is. And he is calling us to faith. He is is calling us to believe the unseen God. You'll notice what it said in there. He says, no one has seen God. Now certainly, if you've read your Bible, you know some people throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament had seen God. And I would suggest they hadn't seen all of him. They saw a bit in theological terms. If someone who were alive today were to see God in all of who he is, they'd be done. The only way to be in God's presence is to be holy like God and to be like God. And we won't be that way until we are made new at the resurrection. And so he's saying we live right now a life of faith. We trust a God we have not seen. But we trust a God we have not seen with love we have seen. How have we seen his love? John said it this way, we testify, we have seen the Christ. I saw him, John would say. I saw him walking around. I saw his feet hit the ground and the dust kick up. I saw him nailed to a cross and bleed out. I saw him after he was allegedly dead and he was alive. I mean, allegedly not as to say he wasn't dead. He was dead on dead. He said, I saw him raised. And John is saying, I testify, I've seen the love of God because I have seen Christ, but I have not seen the fullness of who God is. And so to receive this love is just a matter of trust. Do I trust this loving God or do I not trust him? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God himself? God is one, but he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are all God. God is one in three persons. God the Father has existed for all time. God the Son has existed for all time. And same same with the Spirit. And John is saying, if you believe Jesus, God the Son, sent as a man, is the Son of God, God himself, then you have new life in the Father. Do you believe that God would send his Son, God, God in the flesh, to die for you and pay for your sins? That's a matter of faith, isn't it? For most of human history, most people have sought to atone for our sins through being good. And thankfully, that's worked out tremendously well. I'm being sarcastic. We still haven't got my sarcasm sign installed up here yet. Next year's budget. We have sought to atone for our sins. God says, no, 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 you don't get to pay for anything. If you want your sin taken away, I will take it all away. You don't get to be good to get out of your bad deeds and bad rebellion. We believe God saves. Who do you trust? When you have to stand before God at the end of all things, when you uh, finally meet your maker, what do you know in your heart convinces you that he will receive you and not send you away? The only answer that that will engage you in an eternal relationship with God is, I trust Jesus paid for my sin. And he says when we believe this, when we rely on the work of God through Christ, we have confidence now and confidence on the day of judgment. Some of us don't have confidence on the day of judgment. 
we worry about a giant video screen that will be put up in heaven and everybody will get to see your naughtiest deeds. I don't think that'll be that interesting. Why, why won't that be that interesting? Some of us are a little bit worried about this. I don't even care if they show it. See, in that time, you won't either. You're a little bit worried about it now, but you won't be then. When it's happening, and I don't even think it's going to happen, but I'm just playing along with you. What, what happens when they show the worst thing you've ever done? You rooted against the Seahawks the last time they were in the Super Bowl. That is not right. What happens? Jesus paid for it. And they show some other despicable act. You have a Tom Brady jersey. <laughs> Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for it. So we don't have to worry about that. There's not something that's going to pop up on the screen that Jesus isn't going to say, now that was a doozy, and I hit a home run on that one. Paid for. Paid for. Paid for. What do you have to worry about on the day of judgment in Christ? What do you have to worry about? What's in the buffet? And it's going to be awesome. That's all, we don't have to worry about it. It is just simply paid for. We believe God saves. We believe God saves. I mean, he's crazy this way. I don't know how to express it other than to say, this God is unbelievable. We believe he saves. No one's ever loved like this before. This is what we have to constantly, every single day, even as believers, be reminding ourselves of the good news of the gospel. How many of us as believers are still saddled with guilt and shame? It's paid for. What are we worried about? Let me just let you, off, let you in on something. Your worst sin may be ahead of you. Oh, it got quiet. That doesn't sound theologically accurate. Your worst sin could be ahead of you. You think God doesn't know about it? You think he's up in heaven ringing his hand, boy, I hope they're good tomorrow. Hope they don't do anything. I mean, no, this is silly. It's paid for. This God is unbelievable. We believe God saves. The question then, as a believer who has received this uh, unbelievable love from God, this unbelievable outpouring of his grace, the question then is not merely what's the right thing to do. A Christian who has had the love of God poured into their heart will not spend a minute merely worrying about the right thing to do. What a silly question. The question for the believer who has the love of God poured in their heart is, who do I love and how? Who do I love and how? That's what John calls us to do. We believe God saved. God saves. No one has ever loved like God. We sin, God sends. Unbelievable. We believe God saves. All right, what does it mean then to believe and rest in the power of the gospel? Let's finish this off. Verse 19 through 21, I'm going to read it and then have a few thoughts on it. Verse 19, did you find it in there? We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. No one has ever loved like God. We have God's love, so we must give God's love. Remember, God is the one who initiated this love. He first loved us. He loved rebels. 
and sinners. He initiates, he provides, he moves. We did not sort of reach out to God. We weren't sort of having an inkling that we should hook up and know God. It was just merely God moving to us and saying, you're a rebel, I love you. By his spirit, he moved in us that we might rest in him and trust in him for forgiveness. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Are you ready? Is it easier to love God or those around you? Is it easier to love God or the people around you? Now, some of you are qualifying. It depends on the person. I know. Is it easier to love God or those around you? Verse 20 tells us the answer, doesn't it? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. Now, we're not going to get into it. Two sermons ago, we talked about what he, how he describes hate. What is hate for John? To not love. He says you don't get to not like somebody or sort of be neutral on somebody. It's either you love them with the love of Christ or you... You hate them. We won't, that's all we're, you know, if you want to go through that in depth, you can uh, go online and listen to that message. He says, if anyone loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John is saying, it's more difficult to love the one you have not seen. It is more difficult to love God who you have not seen than the people around you who you have seen. If you love God because of the work of God in your heart and because of you have received his love, loving the people around you, in fact, will be easier. The goal here is not to earn God's love by loving other people. The goal here is to have God move in our heart to such a degree that his love fills us and we love the people around us more deeply because of God's love to us. So a couple of observations about God's love just very quickly. Psalm 50, verse 7 says this. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. This is God speaking. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is, is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So God here loves his people without an angle. God loves his people without an agenda. What does God need from us right now? Like if we don't show up, what does he need? And he's off his rocker. Nothing. You realize God needs absolutely nothing from us. So God comes and loves us with the fullness of his love by sending Christ without an angle, without an agenda. He just simply loves us because that's what he's like. God doesn't need our love in return. God doesn't need our sacrifice in return. God doesn't need our offering in return. God needs nothing from us, but he loves us all the more. Do we love like God? When John challenges us to love one another and the people around us in the same way that God loves, do we love them without an angle? Do we love the, the people that God has placed in our life without an agenda? Or do we love them hoping for a return on our investment? And then when they don't act the way we would expect them to, we get bent out of shape. Suddenly we realize we do love them, but not with God's love, but with our little 
Fickle love. God loves us without an angle, without an agenda. Do you feel that? That God showed up today and just loves you? He doesn't have a to-do list for you. Just to be loved? Who else loves you like that? All right, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Adam and Eve had eaten from the forbidden tree, and they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Some obs- again, another observation about God's love. God's love is love without fear. God's love is love that can handle our rejection. If God couldn't handle rejection, would he have showed up for the walk in the garden? He already knew they had rejected him. His love can handle their rejection. He showed up anyway. He didn't need their acceptance. He didn't need their fawning. In fact, he didn't even need their obedience. And certainly he would have desired it. He was in the garden. But he didn't require it. God's love is a love without fear. A love without uh, uh, an expectation that it must be accepted or God falls apart. God can handle us. Do we love like God? Do we avoid others because we want to avoid being hurt? Do we avoid others because we don't know if we can handle it? Do we avoid others because we can't handle being rejected? God's love is a love without fear because His love is unending. Okay, last thing I want to mention about His love before we conclude. Jesus says this in Matthew 28, verse 20. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you to the end of time, Jesus says. We need to know this about God's love. He is always with us. He is always near. He is always with us. The Bible tells us by His Spirit, He resides in us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. As the Bible tells us both in Deuteronomy and the book of Hebrews, Jesus and, and God through Christ shows us his love by always being present. Last observation to make, love, to make about God's love is the fact that his love for us does what true love always does, which takes the time necessary for love to be expressed. I don't know if you know this or not, but to love somebody takes time. Love somebody means taking time to be with others, to enjoy life together, to walk through uh, the the stuff of life together. This is the challenge that we as a church are going to face. Every church faces it, that the brothers and sisters in the Lord get together for an hour to an hour and a half, two to three times a month. It is really hard to show the love of God to one another when we see each other three hours a month. So when you say, I want to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord in this church or in another church, the fact is, the, is who is going to initiate, who is going to lead, and who is going to seek that we spend time together that we might be with one another enough to actually enjoy a loving relationship 
Who is supposed to do that? Whoever loves like God. If, the, if, if God's love is moving in our hearts, then we should seek to spend time with one another, in church and out of church, that we might enjoy the love of God has for us. Our experience of God's love uh, is critically important to our life in Him. Someday we're going to stand in His presence. We're going to see Him in the face. We're going to experience the warmth of His ever-present love. We're going to experience His love with no brokenness in our hearts, no weakness that will prevent us from enjoying and experiencing His love and His acceptance. I mean, it's going to be a good day. Amen? Is that going to be a good day or what? I'm not sure. I'm not convinced if you're looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure you are too. But our life in God right now is one filled with all kinds of weakness and brokenness. The world we live in is where we live a life in God that is a life of faith, not sight. We live a life of trust and belief, not seeing and hearing. That's why experiencing God's love here is so critically important. Because if we don't experience God's love, if we don't receive His love by faith and experience it day in and day out, it's going to be really hard to walk the road that God's laid out for us. Over and over again, we find in Scripture this truth, that we don't walk the road of faith in order to get God's love. We have received God's love, so therefore we can walk this road He has put in front of us. So what keeps you from experiencing God's love? I would suggest most of us walked in today, if you were asked, do you feel like God's love, God loves you? We would say, a little? I mean, a bit? I mean, I know he loves me. I don't know if I'm getting that vibe. Maybe you don't like me expressing it in those terms. If you don't like it, then don't read Psalms. It's terribly emotional. So what keeps you from experiencing God's love the way he intends for you? I'm going to give you three ideas. Are you ready? All right, you're really selling me on you being ready. You guys still awake with me? I have a pee. We haven't been that long. All right, three things about experiencing God's love is this. Our default way of thinking is that we have to earn God's love. The default normal way we think as humans is God's love must be earned. I don't care if you're a believer or a non-believer. This is the way our brains are wired. I have to earn God's love. How do we retrain our hearts and retrain our minds so that we think rightly about God's love and instead of uh, seeking to earn God's love, we rest in God's love? How is it that our hearts and minds might be retrained, rewired? The word the Bible uses is transformed. It's through God's word. The powerful work of the Holy Spirit and his word. The only place in the world where God's love is boldly and clearly proclaimed is the Word of God. I mean, honestly, I mean, if we're honest, I don't know if you want to be honest or not, but for many of us, the love of God is real because we aren't going to the fount of His love, the Scripture, to be told that He loves us, to immerse ourselves in the truth of God's love over and over and over again. Let me ask you this. Is the world around you going to tell you God loves you? Is the world around you going to tell you God loves you? No, they're not. No fault of their own. It's just not how the world is wired. 
Is our heart going to declare God's love to us on its own? No, it's, it's not. We have to have God's word in us all the time, and we need to be told the truth about God over and over again, that God loves me. And the Bible is the place where that is happening. If we're not immersing ourselves in the fount of the truth of God's word, we are going to forget that God loves us. And you say, well, there's a whole bunch of the Bible that's really hard to understand. I know, because his love is that awesome. So don't give up. Go get it. Another obstacle to our grasping the power and truth of God's love is, I don't want to be impolite. Oh, yeah, I do. Um, It's our sin. Now pay attention to what I'm saying here. I'm not saying if you sin, God loves you less. I'm not saying that. You can't sin down God's love. His love is too big. And we got some varsity sinners in here. Let's put it this way. Your wife, your husband, your uh, uh, kids, whatever, they make your favorite meal. What's your favorite meal? Think of it right now. Get, get in your head. It's almost lunchtime, so I like to talk about food. They make your favorite meal. You come home and they say, you know what? I love you, and I made your favorite meal. It's on the table in the dining room. I just want you to enjoy it. It's plated up. It's hot, ready to go. And you say, you know, that's... It's amazing. You do. You love me so much. But you know what? I've got a package of ramen noodles um, in my pocket. Um, I was planning on just crunching those suckers down. I'm not even going to put them in water. I mean, they're a bit stale. Somebody opened the package. Uh, so they're kind of <clears throat> chewy and crunchy at the same time. I'm just going to crunch those suckers down, and then I was going to wash that down with the flavor packet. It's a chaser. Thanks anyway, though. So did they love you less? No, the meal was there, wasn't it? We just decided to give ourselves to something else. And we completely missed the experience of their love because we chose something that lessened the experience of their love. In fact, what we're going to do as sinners later on when we're hungry, we're going to say, they don't even really love me. If they loved me, I wouldn't be hungry. Pretty soon in Stin, we, we don't even go to the dining room anymore because all we're going to do is eat ramen noodles. They're not that good, but it's better than nothing. That cycle of deception keeps us from going in and being nourished by the love that has been provided to us because we're starving, and so then we don't feel love. Not because it's not there, but because we've chosen a poor meal. Satan wants to convince you that God hates you. So he draws you in to give you into your sin, and in the thrill of it, we don't realize that we're being deceived and we're starving. And instead of saying, get behind me, Satan, we say, God, where are you? Don't you love me? That's the real deception of sin. We are starved of the love of God, even though it's readily available. It's tragic. Finally, last obstacle to our experience in God's love is how we view it, especially as it relates to the people around us. The love of God is not a zero-sum game. So if you give me 10 bucks and then I give you 8 bucks, I'm left with 2 bucks. God's love operates completely different. God gives me 10 bucks of his love. I give you 10 bucks of his love. How much am I left with? 10 bucks of his love. 
The mathematicians, their brains just exploded. That's not how his love works. We have to remember the primary means by which we experience God's love is the movement of his love from God to us to others. Let me explain, say that again because I don't think you buy it. The primary means by which we experience the love of God is the movement of it from God to us to others. The more we trust God to never stop loving us, the more we can rest in his love will never end. And frankly, the more we can sort of get over ourselves a little bit, the more we can pass his love on to others and we will experience his love more deeply and more fully when we sacrificially love other people who don't deserve it. One of the greatest obstacles to experiencing the love of God in our life is the fact that we don't think we can handle it. Like if we love others, we're going to run out. The truth is we need our minds retrained by the Bible that God's love never ends. We need to walk away from the empty deception of the sin that is bound up in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit will reveal what that sin is for you. And we need to fully experience his love by showing that godly, uh, no agenda, no questions asked, never going to end love to the people around us. Last question, then we're going to close. Have you ever noticed that everyone around you seems to all of a sudden have all kinds of needs when you're in a low spot? And when you're feeling great, hunky-dory, skipping, whistling, if people still do that, Everybody around you seems fine. Your life craters into the bottom of the abyss, and what happens? Now all of a sudden, everybody around you needs something. And this is where faith comes in. Do we walk by faith or by sight? Do I put people off and say, you know, I'm going to love them when I've got my stuff squared away? And thank God Jesus didn't say that on the cross. Or am I going to step into the faith of walking with God who can provide and say, God... I trust your love will never end, and in the midst of my need, I will express and show love to those around me who have need. Your love will never end. That's what it looks like to love in the body of Christ. It is a step of faith. The question is, do you trust God to be there for you?